Warning, this episode contains shocking moments and raw or vulnerable content that may not be suitable for all audience members, especially children. Please listen at your own discretion. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Inside the Wooniverse. Welcome. You are about to enter the Wooniverse. In Inside a mystical, magical portal between worlds. I had some sense that there was something behind the world, but I didn't know it. It was a belief. Where playful curiosity leads the way and beyond. I think of plants as teachers and spiritual guides, like they are family. You won't believe the ahas that come up in every single conversation. We are the light. We don't need to seek enlightenment. We are the light. What we need to do is embody. I can't wait to explore this enchanting space with you. Everyone came here under the stars with the promise to be of service to the evolution of this crazy game called humans. Inside the Wooniverse a podcast coming to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine. Hi there, and welcome to Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine. I'm your host, Colette baron reid Joining us today is the fabulous Dr. Maya Shatrit, a neurologist, an herbalist, urban farmer, Hellenistic astrologer, and author of The Dirt Cure fabulous title. Anyway, Dr. Maya is considered to be a visionary in the field of psychedelics. She founded the Terrain Institute, where she teaches earth-based programs for transformational healing, including professional training programs for psychedelic assisted approaches. She works and studies with indigenous communities and healers from all around the world and is a lifelong student of ethnobotany, plant healing, and the sacred. I can hardly wait to talk to you. Welcome to the Wooniverse, Maya. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to dig into this conversation with you, pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Now you have a ton of training and you've accomplished so much in a variety of fields, but I wanna go back to the beginning. When did you become interested in healing, for example? Maybe healing and plants because the two of them go together with you. You know, I think that people always say, well, how did you go from being a, conventional neurologist to being a, all of these other things that you do. And what I want to say is that I think I started out very unconventional, found my way into being conventional, and then kind of busted the whole system (laughs) open. So, you know, when I was a little kid, I was very connected to plants and trees. And I would go and like, I was an only child, so I had to keep myself busy a good amount of the time. Part of the time I'd read books and part of the time I'd go to this creek that was near my house. And it was like totally polluted. It was like, you know, iridescent rainbows (laughs) of gasoline in it. But I was like, this is my magical place. And I would make my little potions and mandalas out of the sticks and leaves. And I didn't even know what I was doing, but I was very, very deeply connected to that magical world of plants and of nature and of the water and all of those things. And then, you know, as you get older, nobody thinks that's very interesting or normal. (laughs) And um, while I never was really all that normal, you know, once I started to kind of decide, okay, I'm going to like care about school, I want to achieve, I want to do these things, I more push those things to the side. But the reason I even went to medical school was because I was interested in 
healing in the mind. I right. saw a Bill Moyers special, actually, <gasps> that totally changed my ideas about medicine. And I thought, wow, you know, they're using all these amazing mind-body approaches, and that's what I want to do. And I'm going to go to medical school and do that. And I wrote an essay about it, and they let me in somehow to <laughs> medical school. And um, yeah, so that was really the beginning of my journey was actually, I think, pretty unconventional. And then I I sort of, uh, I passed as normal for a little while. <laughs> I love that you said that I passed as normal for a little while. Starting out, you know, really unconventional, whatever conventional means, right? You know, like in that box, like you weren't there. And then you found your way into it. And I also, by the way, was really impacted by Bill Moyers. When I saw Bill Moyer and Joseph Campbell together was when mm. I started studying Campbell and then Young, and mm. which is now my, you know, my background. That's where I, I dove in. But um when you think about busting the system open, it's like, I think that the conventional gives us a kind of a safer container to explore these ideas. And then we have to figure out a way how to marry it with the more organic, right? Organic truth that we have that's in us waiting to come out. Would you say that's true? I think so. I mean, I think honestly, you know, I was just talking to my girlfriend the other day and we were saying, are any of my friends really normal? We're like, right? she like assessed all my friends as being weird. And then I was like, well, what about your friends? And she's like, no, my friends are weird too. And then I was like, well, what really is normal? Right? Because right? <laughs> I think we all start out our little weird, you know, eccentric selves. That's what like a lot of kids are if you actually pay attention. And I worked as a pediatric neurologist for years with kind of little weird kids and they're amazing. I mean, they're like <laughs> the best. And I just spent <laughs> a lot of time reassuring parents mostly that, you know, just because school wants us to be these little like pegs that fit into these little round mm -hmm. holes, it doesn't actually mean that there's anything wrong with your kid if they don't fit. And in fact, it's actually maybe going to be better for them in the long run if they don't get kind of stuffed into this normal box that we all try to put everybody into. So to me, it's like we come out weird right. <laughs> and we come out eccentric and then we do this thing that like kind of straitjackets us. And then yeah. there's this like whole peeling of the onion or unfurling of ourselves that has to happen as part of our hero's journey to be able to come back to ourselves and really right. live as we are. And that's why I called it organic. And I think the fact, so I didn't know that you were a pediatric neurologist. Uh, so you were working with neurodivergent kids a lot, right? So you're exploring these concepts with them and checking their neurology. And that's very close to where we come back to with psychedelics, mm -hmm. right? But I want to go segue from working with kids into working with plants. When did you become interested in working with sacred plants, like the, the concept of plants that are sacred or sacred medicine? Well, so I'll just say that First of all, I work with children and adults, so my spectrum was wide, but definitely a lot of kids for sure. And, you know, I think of plant medicine, people now talk about plant medicine, they mean psychedelics. But when I talk about plant medicine or sacred plants, to me, that includes a whole array of different kinds of plants that might, for many people, be like, why would you say that's sacred? Like tobacco or like Tulsi, like holy basil, or I will encounter all different kinds of plants and you know, I think that all plants have incredible magic to them. Uh -huh. And I think that we can journey with a lot of different kinds of plants. And I do guide people through journeys with like rose or with Tulsi or with cacao. Or what I would say is 
That's been a journey since I started really working with plants and herbs at all. When I started working more with psychedelic plants, started when, um, I mean, other than whatever we do when we're in our teens and, you know, (laughs) experiment in our friends' basements or whatever, or beyond that for some people, (laughs) uh, it was really when I journeyed to Ecuador. So I went to Ecuador because my son was sick, Uh actually. And I started working with a spiritual teacher who was a fourth generation shaman and a really, a PhD in ethnobotany. And I wanted to go to Ecuador and learn with her. And Uh that was when she had a mass, she lived in the jungle and she had this massive ayahuasca vine that really went, I mean, to the top of the treetops. It was so, she was this huge, massive, gorgeous plant and she grew cacao and she had, we met San Pedro cacti all over. It was just this really incredible experience, not just around these kinds of sacred, psychedelic kinds of plants, but that was a part of it. Although that was not why I went. It was how I cultivated the beginning of my relationship with these plants. And, you know, it's interesting because I think of plants as teachers and spiritual guides. And so I always think I was probably once a plant because I just feel so connected to the plants, like they are family. And I think, you know, what you speak to is that idea that we are in relationship and even in a almost family relationship, a real deep kinship with the plant world. And I would say with the mushroom, the fungi world, and all of them, the animal world as well. And that's part of what these sacred plants do. They open a portal that helps us see that rich kinship that we have. Oh, I could listen to you talk forever. (laughs) So, you know, I also feel that very same, same feeling that they are kin. Um, Tell me about how your interest with plant consciousness? Like when did you first encounter a consciousness with plants? And I'm glad that you brought up that it's not always about the psychedelic plants and mm-hmm. holy basil. We we actually have that in the evenings, Mark and I, and I know we have cacao and, you know, for certain times of the year and things like that. We actually ourselves know that these things are that and, you know, medicine that can offer you are in there in these array of combinations and stuff. So it was really interesting uh, that you brought that up that because people immediately go to all plant medicine is magic mushrooms, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. So mm-hmm. Again, let's go back to the consciousness of the plant. Tell me about your first encounter. Well, so here's what I would say. I think I think that comes from my childhood. And I think psychedelic plants speak really loudly to us. Yeah. But all plants are speaking to us. And the way that they speak is not in words. So there is this, I believe, a universal language that has no words that we all once spoke. And water, wind, seeds, sun, soil all the plants, all the animals, and that we have forgotten that language uh, to some great extent. And I think why people feel so passionately about psychedelics, one reason is that there is a kind of remembering that happens for many people, not all people, but for many people when they in some way ingest those plants or work with those plants. But to me, I've always felt that I spoke that language. And so like, for example, when I was a little girl, we used to sometimes see like a a wooded lot that would be clear cut because they were going to, you know, build a house or whatever in my neighborhood. And I would say those trees are so sad. I feel I feel like so sad for those trees. And I felt this really deep mm-hmm. kind of empathic connection with 
the trees, the plants, you know, what had been like cleared. And I felt that I had a really strong, potent communication. And I actually, it may have been stronger for me than for other people, but I don't think I'm the only person. I think many of us have that language when we come out. And yeah, what happens is that we are, you know, as we discussed before, it's really kind of like, we're told that's not a thing. It's pretending or it's imagination or all of that. And so for me, I always tell people like if they train with me or they work with me, people say, oh, well, am I just imagining this? And I'm like, what do you think your imagination is? Right. You know, (laughs) it's the bridge. (laughs) Yeah. I've always believed that in our first sense of consciousness comes from the fact that we are spirit first, we are human beings second. And that common language that you talk about is about the consciousness that brings us all together, whether it's a plant or whether it's a person. And I do think that the advent of monotheism after the goddess culture was annihilated many thousands of years ago was when, you know, when we started to dominate nature, the concept that we are on top of it as opposed to being a part of it or being part of a system of conscious beings and sentient beings. And people think, oh, plants don't feel, but they do. Mm. I have to tell you this crazy story though. Um, So, uh, you know, you were talking about the big ayahuasca plant. Yeah. I'll I'll segue into the story. So I was doing a reading, this isn't just a few years ago, for a woman, a German woman in Germany. And uh, this is before I retired and I was still doing one-on-one readings. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm getting a real clear indication that your grandmother she speaks Spanish or she's Spanish. I think she's Spanish. She goes, I have no Spanish camera. I said, I know, but there's Latin America here, whatever. She goes, no, 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 I'm German. I went, yeah, yeah, no, but I'm telling you, she's telling me she's your grandmother. And I'm like, and I'm arguing with this woman and I couldn't help myself. And I could, I said, and she smells like earth. I said, and she's really, she's really mad at you right now. And, and she's like, Oh my God. And I said, not mad at you, but you haven't done the work that you came to her to do. And I'm like, does this make any sense to you? Because you're saying you don't have a Latin American grandmother. Like, you know, and she's claiming just, she goes, I just came back from the Amazon and I went on an ayahuasca journey. Mm-hmm. And she told me she was the grandmother. Right. And I'm talking to this plant. Okay. I'm, t- I'm hearing the plant. I'm smelling the plant. The plant is old. It is so, and it's basically was, you didn't come here and honor the sacred covenant that we had together. It was like very, very deep. And I was completely freaked out. I'll be honest. Cause I mean, I've experienced a lot of crazy things doing what I do. And I just, I'm, I'm always amazed when something like this happens. And it was the first time that this sense of real conscious connection and storytelling that was coming to me from this plant that because she didn't complete uh, what she was there to do, which really had to do with some of the content, you know, the the un, unrealized and unrecognized content of her ancestry. Um, you know, she was molested by her dad and a bunch of stuff, and she'd had a breakdown prior. And she said, you came to me to heal, and you won't do it. So she was bawling, and I'm crying, and I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> so, right? So have yeah. you had any kind of encounters? I mean, you obviously worked with a woman who had a relationship with these plants. And so have you had like an actual conversation with a plant? Well, yeah. And so this is kind of one of those beautiful things is these conversations are happening all the time. And then I'll tell you one, you know, something a little more in the psychedelic category. But when I 
walked in the woods once, just for an example. This is a woods I go trail running in and I go walking in and I go praying in. I was walking through the woods one day and this kind of stuff happens to me a lot. And I think it happens actually to many of us if we kind of have, again, that ability to tune into our subtle seeing and knowing. And I said, I want to protect you. Show me how I can protect you. And I look down in front of me and there is a big piece of bark that is shaped like a sword. Oh, wow. And it was huge. It was a huge piece of bark and it was unmistakably shaped like a sword. And I picked it up and you would think maybe it would fall apart. No, it was this sword, a bark sword. And I was like, okay, like, I guess this is my message, you know, Um, now I'm figuring out what to do next. So, you know, so there are these kinds of moments when you ask and asking is very key. Yes, asking. Mm -hmm. With the plants and, and just in general with ancestors, you know, a lot of my work is with the invisible world as Yours has been. And so a lot of that has to do with being willing to ask. And by the way, as a side point, people really, I find, struggle to get to a place where they feel that they can ask and then receive. They feel like Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to, I shouldn't, I don't deserve to, I don't know how, all of these things. So, so much of people, when they come into my world, whether it's training with me or working with me one-on-one in some way, is always around permission, beginning Mm -hmm. with permission to ask. Because if you don't ask, if you can't ask, then how do they know (laughs) exactly what you need? You know, I do think that there's a lot of conditioning and I do think that it's um, it's societal or cultural or religious where we're supposed to be the dominators of nature. Nature is inanimate. And if we're asking for a conversation with nature, then somehow we're asking to, for something evil or something bad. There's a superstition that, around that as well, too, that I think we have to identify and say, oh, wow, okay, so this is in my psyche. So somehow I have to get past that and just say, and I always say, you've got to be willing to be willing to ask, right? Start there. I'm willing to be willing to ask. I'm willing to let go my fear of the reprisals or, and also the fear that it won't answer you back because you've been so trained to see it as inanimate and it doesn't have a spirit or consciousness. Yeah. But you always get a message when you ask nature, always. Yeah. I mean, because nature is spirit. So just as we are engaged in spirit all the time, and I think, you know, part of this goes back not just to the decimation of goddess culture, but actually even more recently, I have a whole module on this in my training around the European witch hunts, which is about Mm -hmm. 400 years ago or so. And um, that was the time of Descartes. And the birth of the modern scientific method happened at the Mm. same time. And the witch hunts, which were all about actually killing anything, right? Well, it was the herbalists. It was the wise women. It was anyone who was doing the magical, celebrating the cycles of nature and the magical world was just really part of sort of village culture. And oftentimes women were the holders of that, especially older women who happened to also be very give zero fucks and very politically (laughs) active. And at that time, it was also the elimination of the commons. The commons were 
green space that anyone could use. So they could graze their animals there. They could grow vegetables there. They could do anything. And it wasn't owned land. It was public land that anyone could use. And what happened, which is the beginning of capitalism as well, was the commons were made private. And so all these people had nowhere to graze their animals or grow their food. And it actually caused all these revolts and uprisings that were spearheaded by older women because a lot of the men were killed or imprisoned. And so then the witch hunts began as partly a dominating of women, a dominating of this revolt, a dominating of magic culture. So it was a really potent time. And at the same time was when the Enlightenment, quote unquote, the Enlightenment began, which was really all about being rational. But that whole, if you look at Descartes' writings or Francis Bacon, who was the father of the scientific method, it's all about dominating nature. It's about torturing nature, in fact. Right, torturing nature. Torturing nature to get her secrets. We we put her on the rack, just like they were doing to many of these witches, quote unquote witches, um, you know, and other people who were out of the box people at that time. And, you know, it was all about betraying sister, betraying sister, mother, betraying daughter. It was like, you know, neighbor betraying neighbor. So I think like just to speak to that idea of how we're afraid to ask, we're afraid to engage. It's like we're afraid to be destroyed because in our ancestry, in many cases, right? And at that same time, even if you're not European, you're not from that particular part of the world. Of course, that was the beginning of colonization and the whole like, you know, slavery. So the whole African continent became a part of that. The whole new world, right? Mm -hmm. North and South America all became a part of that whole mission. So this was something that was global that happened. And it's in everybody's or most everybody's lineage, I believe, that we're afraid of being destroyed when we engage with this voice, this language um, that's around us. That's amazing. You know, it's. I started really diving into my ancestry. I'm 90% Slavic, mm. um, Polish and Serbian. And uh, I was looking into, because my father was the one who taught me about spirit animals. He taught me how to read Turkish coffee cups and stuff. So he really indoctrinated me into the, the folklore of the Slavs, right? And uh, the Ukraine is part of that. And, you know, that there's a real rich history there. And why some of the they, the religion, the religious structure there, they call it double faith because they kept a lot of the pagan beliefs and ideas, et cetera, and kind of like decided to take what they liked from Christianity and shove it on top. Right? So just mm-hmm. kind of like That's you're going to see a lot of, yeah, that you see that earth culture in the Slavic traditions. Uh, it's really interesting. But still that you're right, that sense of fear, like, whoa, what if I do this? Now, today it's sort of trendy, you know, but it, there still is that pervasive sense of it's not safe because people are afraid or they believe that there was something wrong with the desire to be connected to the invisible world and to respect all nature, etc. And and to converse with it, right? So it's it's an interesting dilemma. But again, now you exist. Your teachings <laughs> exist, right? And and you can. And I'm glad that there's a conversation now because I think people are starving. You know, I think plant medicine has become, quote unquote, popular. When I say popular, it's because people are starving. They're starving for that connection. They don't know where to get it. Yeah, I think that's really true. It's been, you know, and I my story is both similar and different because my father's family is from Morocco. And actually, 
you know, my aunts were always, they always these kinds of rituals. And so, and they're also very religious in a more conventional way. Um, and actually my grandfather, who by all accounts was not necessarily the nicest person, was actually uh, who everybody would come to when they were sick. And he would go out into the fields and pick the plants that they needed and give it to them in addition to the other things he did, right? Because a lot of people had a lot of roles. So I'm like, oh, I have this indigenous lineage. You know, you look at my aunts and my family, you can see, but that they were are very ashamed of that indigenous lineage yeah. because it was actually something that put them in a lot of compromise and they ended up being immigrants and, and in poverty, abject poverty for a long time until they moved through it. So I actually had to rediscover that indigenous knowing and that sort of extract this sort of spiritual <laughs> ritual. I was like, wait, why do you light like 17 candles every weekend? Like, you know what I mean? And all these things right. to really kind of get to the the meat of it. And then I went on just like a lot of my family members who had been in sort of indoctrinated with that shame of this indigenous background that they didn't even really know about because we couldn't talk about it. And we didn't, we really didn't know very much about it. I went to medical school. I did all these, can I got married and had three kids and did all this very conventional stuff. And then at a certain point in time, in sort of my own way, I ended up not long after engaging with plant medicines, and this is not uncommon, leaving my marriage. That was almost right. a 20 year marriage. Someone I was with for 25 years since college. I got married when I was 23. And Actually, I fell in love with a woman and sort oh, of so got really into a whole different world. What I realized ultimately was there was no way in that relationship I had been in, which felt safe and very, you know, it was sort of doing all the things it was supposed to do, but it didn't allow me to grow and really evolve into the person that wanted to exist here in this right. earthly realm at this time. And I really had to you know, give myself permission in a sense, or or maybe the plants helped me to do that um, so that I could show up not in that safe way, but actually really embracing all of those parts of myself like you. Okay, so is there a difference between a sacred plant, a master plant, and a teacher plant, or are they the same? And can you share some examples of each type if they are different and if they're not, why? So master plants and teacher plants are synonyms, really. And it's basically different terminology for the same category of plants okay. used uh -huh. by Indigenous people generally. And I, when I say Indigenous people, I want to just add that there are many, 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 many nations of Indigenous people. So yeah. I'm being very general for a group that is extremely diverse, but yeah. this is something that I would say is a common overall idea, okay? That right. teacher plants or master plants are things that, they're plants that actually have neurological, if we would talk about it in, in kind of Western language, that have real neurological impact that help you shift or transform in really significant ways, change your state of being or consciousness. That can include, I would like to say something like caffeine, right. okay? Like uh, yeah, coffee is a teacher plant, okay? Right. Coffee would be considered that. Cacao is considered that. Kava is considered that. So it's not, again, all about psychedelics, but it's about that sense of being altered and shifting your kind of awareness by this plant that's powerful and speaks in that louder 
voice, if if we could say that. The louder voice. Yeah, I get it. Because you do change. I mean, the caffeine will give you energy. The cacao gives you a certain feeling. Kava, Tulsi, like you mentioned, holy basil before too. Those are things you actually feel. Well, and I want to mention, because this might not come up otherwise, and you said we could talk about anything. Anything. <laughs> anything. That- So when I went to Ecuador, one of the things that my friend said to me before I left, he said, while you're there, don't be afraid if someone offers you like coca, like from the coca plant, okay, which is popularly and widely known as like this evil, evil thing because it's like the source of cocaine. He said, don't be afraid to like chew the leaves or drink the tea because if you're at altitude, it will really help you. Well, of course, needless to say, at some point on this very adventurous trip, I was taking, you know, we were going to altitude, significant altitude. And I am sensitive, even though I'd been preparing, I'd been taking reishi mushroom, I'd been taking, you know, I had a whole elaborate array of things I had done to prepare myself. And yet we got there and my heart's like beating really quickly and I'm lightheaded and I'm feeling kind of terrible. And I'm thinking we're supposed to go to these incredible hot springs and then dive into this like icy mountain. You know, I had, we had a whole plan, but I didn't know if I was gonna be able to do it. And there were other people also who were really suffering. So we stopped in a botanica and they gave us coca leaves. And so I remembered what my friend said and I'm chewing these leaves. And, you know, it didn't make me feel like- High. You know, it didn't make me feel high, but I started within, I would say three minutes. I felt clear in my mind. I felt mm-hmm. my heart rate settled. I felt like a person. I was able to do the whole day. Totally, I would say really within three to five minutes, I felt a lot, a lot better. And everyone else experienced the same. And, you know, so this kind of goes to that idea of coca is a master plant. And Mm -hmm. I really, you know, because when I bring up tobacco also, like if I'm on Instagram and I'm talking about tobacco being a sacred plant, because I grow tobacco every year because I just just because I love her and because she's the most beautiful. If you ever smell tobacco flowers, you will understand like it's like very heady, enchanting kind of fragrance. So I grow these plants and people are like, why, you know, why would, and coca plants like, oh, that's so bad. That's a bad plant. So no, that's a master plant, a teacher plant. And again, you feel different when you chew the plant, but cocaine is a whole different thing. It's how the Westerners, completely, and not just the Westerners, but kind of the colonizers, maybe we could say in a sort of pejorative way, wanted to use these plants. And that's something I always really caution people is your relationship with the plant, even your language. Yeah. So talking about the plant as, oh, I use this to do this or that. No, like this is a, think about this as a sacred relationship that you would have with someone you were going to be intimate with. And so you want to cultivate that relationship. I grow the plants to cultivate my relationship with these plants. And so I'm tending them. I'm feeding them. I'm talking to them. I'm watering them. I'm doing all of these things that actually change me before I ever, ever would ingest, whether it's as an essence or in a bigger way. Right. I, I want to know these plants and I want them to know me. And that's the beginning of that conversation. Yeah. And isn't it about a respect? Yes. Right? Because if you hear the word use, like I'm clean and sober 36 and a half years and mm-hmm. used cocaine, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and ended up taking the, the express train into recovery because it was not a sacred relationship. It wasn't at all. It was a way to self-harm. And, and when you think about when drugs are taken from its original purpose and, you know, master purpose, and then somehow miss 
used, right, then misused by then there's going to be a negative effect at some point. So mm-hmm. I love that you said that because it is it is about respect and uh, bringing it back to its original purpose in of relationship, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. This is fantastic, but we have to take a little break now. So please stay with us. We'll be right back. Okay, Maya, my next question is, what are some aspects of little known magic that can be found within sacred plant medicines? So for me, when I talk about magic, I think it's really about being able to cultivate a relationship with with mystery and with the invisible. So what master plants can do is heighten your awareness or help, and we could talk about it from a very nerdy, sciencey, neurologic thing, because I love nerding out about that, but really in a just basic way, help to strip away a lot of the stories that you might have about yourself, about your relationships, about your life, about the world, about the invisible, and basically allows you to see beyond those things. You know, I want to just preface before I even get into it, because I I can get very excited when I'm talking about these master plants and psychedelics, but I also want to just be clear that I don't think this is for everybody. I don't think that this is something people should necessarily be doing a lot of. Maybe for some people they should be, but I think for many of us, and for me, in fact, I'm very measured with my ingestion of any of these plants because I, I have necklaces I wear made from the medicine. I tend right. them. I grow them. I do a lot of things. And I just want to be clear about that so that, you it's, know. Yeah. It's not about doing them. doesn't have to be. And actually, I coach people through microdosing experiences. And I think microdosing experiences, which are sub-psychedelic experiences, so you can do your life, you can do your day, you can, you know, go to work or take care of your kids or whatever the things, and still be experiencing shifts and awareness in a different way that doesn't alter you to the extent that you can't operate normal, you know, Norm- mm-hmm. normally, whatever. <laughs> We've whatever already said is. normal's uh-huh. not a thing, but, you know, <laughs> um, kind of blend in with the normies. So I would just say, like, I think there are a lot of really beautiful ways to your point around addiction that it's possible also to engage, even though psychedelics have been shown in studies to absolutely treat addiction. And when I say treat, I don't use that word lightly. I mean, people who are on meth, cocaine, heroin, who certain kinds of psychedelics, particularly Iboga, but not just. Mm -hmm. And Iboga requires a lot of medical prep before you do it because it can really actually, that is one psychedelic that can actually stop your heart. Like you need to really be vetted and with someone very experienced before you do that. But at the same time, these medicines actually can treat addiction and they can also become addictive, not in the way that we think of something like heroin or cocaine or alcohol, but we can become reliant in some way and think this is what we need in order to be able to see beyond or feel beyond or have that sense of connection. And in fact, that's very much not the case for most people. Right. Yeah, I get it. Because it's true. It's like, oh, I want that awareness. I want more of that awareness. That's the addiction is really more to the connection to the outer realms, the hidden realms. Because once you have a taste of it, you're like, oh, this is where I should be all the time. 
But we don't need, what I had to prove to myself too, is that I don't need any substance to move into those realms. I live there and I live there most of the time. So I can, but I, I today have great respect, great, great respect. I mean, like talking to the grandmother, excuse me, like <laughs> she <Yeah>. scared me. <laughs> I'm going to say, yep. she was like, okay, I never want to meet you in a dark alley. <laughs> <laughs> She's fierce. She is oh. so, you know, these medicines and people will say, oh, like which psychedelic is the right psychedelic for me? So, you know, I teach a whole in-depth course on all of these medicines, but part of what I believe is that, you know, when you feel called to a particular medicine, then that's something to pay attention to and start to cultivate that relationship. People will talk about ayahuasca as the grandmother, you know, or we call her mama or grandmother ayahuasca because, and she is like a Kalima kind of energy. So she has a very destructive force to her and kind of the death vine. She's the death of your ego, the death of your former self, death and rebirth, right? But the death part, we love talking about rebirth. And when we talk about death and rebirth, we don't love talking about the death death part. part. No, let's just go to rebirth (laughs) right away. Let's, let's, like pass right over to the rebirth. No, it's true. And there was a sense of, it was an interesting sensory experience for me because of the earthy quality to the smell. Like I, I don't always smell when I'm, I I, I thought for sure I was connecting as a medium. I still felt that it was an ancestor. I, I kept arguing, no, 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 this is an ancestor. And then I realized, oh, she's all our ancestor. That's right. You know, and and That's you right. respect your grandmother. That was like, so I made it. Well, that was a joke that I made. Well, I don't want to meet her in the dark. It's really if I go, if, you know, you want to make sure you're willing to do the work. If you meet her, can you will meet her in the dark? Right, absolutely, because it's right. It's the death vine. She's the she is she comes to you in the dark and. I love that you brought that up. I mean, that story is an incredible story. And you're bringing up a really important point, which is when you engage with these medicines, you are engaging in a sacred contract. Yeah. So those people who are going back every week for their weekly, you know, ayahuasca ceremony, but it's like, that's just, she's showing you, she's opening doors. She's opening a window, you know, it's a portal. And then you have a responsibility after that. And this is, Really why I created the certification program that I have is to guide people, you know, and help other people be guided to the what now, right? You've done- The what now, yes. You've had the awakening. You've had, and that could be through psychedelics or it could be through illness or it could be through, right, whatever it is. And now you're in this sacred contract that you weren't in before or you weren't aware of before. And now what do you do? Right. And that was the point, I think, when I think back of that, because that was a profound moment for me. I'm like, wow, that was wild. And I realized she didn't know what to do next. There was an avoidance thing. Apparently, she did know the person to talk to next kind of thing. But I thought, oh, that's so interesting because they're, if it's not done correctly or done with the right reverence and respect, et cetera, and have it flow through, you're left with the shattering and you don't know how to pick up the pieces or you're just in denial and you throw up and you want to go. And that's, you know, so the fact that you treat this with such respect and you, you know, you offer this, the journey, it doesn't stop after you've completed. There there has to be a follow through because it is the covenant is to step through the portal and to change and then to come back with the gift. It's very much like the Jungian idea of the shaman archetype. This is the truth that everybody right now has been through this initiation, like especially through the pandemic and you know the, all the social justice issues and the 
big social change that's being required of everybody right now, a big awakening. But our job, what do we do next? Our, we have to keep going to bring some solution, some gift, some treasure back to the community. That's the next step. And we need guides for that. Absolutely. You put that so beautifully. And I think one of the things that I would add to that is that we think that this has to be really hard and difficult, I think, in a lot of cases. And it's like work and, you know, or at least a lot of the people that I have encountered. And, and even I think in my own experience, I thought, well, this is difficult, right? right? But what I've discovered is that it's actually very playful. There's a very playful and even potentially joyful aspect to how do we find those answers. It's by being really curious and and playing and experimenting and making mistakes and and kind of being like little puppies, little kids, like <laughs> willing to kind of like, you know, fall on our backs and be like, oh, yep. okay, that wasn't the right way. I'm going to try this way. And, you know, so I think um, we're in a really beautiful moment right now, even though the world feels, I think, really chaotic and mm -hmm. people are really kind of losing it in a lot of ways, even more, I almost feel now than yeah. During the real meat of the quarantine mm -hmm. and the kind of scariest part of that, it's really like now people are so tapped out and what's next and when's the next shoe going to drop? And it's like, how do we keep this momentum going is really about, it doesn't mean ignore the world around us. It doesn't mean that we don't have to come and be in service in good ways and bring those gifts, but it's doing it in, a, in the spirit of play and joy. I love that you said that because curiosity, play, and joy, that's that innocence of the kid again, right? And also enables everybody to make mistakes. It's But I think we all have to kind of get on the same page with that and say we're allowed to experiment right now because nobody has all the answers. So if we can be playful and joyful, given that we are looking to find a solution, isn't that right? Like, so then why not play and see? And, you know, sometimes it, we won't hit the mark. We will make mistakes. Um, and Often. Often we yeah, more than often. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say even what if we just learned how to ask better questions rather yeah. than trying to always come to answers? Maybe if we ask better questions or bigger questions and just be curious, then we might discover and co-create something that's never existed before rather than rushing to answers that are coming from our limited knowing and our limited mind. So I think there's that even goes further to that idea of curiosity and play and, and innocence. Absolutely. I love that you brought up the limitation of the mind because, you know, when you think about who we are, we're memory-based creatures. Our subconscious is based on memory repetition, right? If we're trying to build a world on certainty that we can only define that by what we know already. So if we're curious and playful and like, oh, let's see, like you just said, creating something that hasn't ever been done before, that has to come with letting go what we already know and stepping into the uncharted, right? You literally have to step into uncharted waters and trust that the Loch Ness monster could actually give you a ride instead of being somebody that's going to eat you. <laughs> right. Well, and this is such a perfect dovetail with actually my nerdy scientific thing I'm going to share about psychedelics right Ooh. now, which is... so. You know, one of the things that psychedelics do, as far as we understand so far, in the nervous system is it shuts down something called the default mode network, 
so DMN. And um, the default mode network is kind of our mean network, and it helps like run all of our mind and systems, and it suppresses. It's actually kind of a, a suppressive system that so that you don't remember all your old traumatic memories right. and feelings and things. So it allows you to operate in the world successfully when it's operational and when it's not operational, it goes offline. Suddenly right. these old memories, old feelings, old stories can kind of rise up into your awareness and it allows you to look at them and be in conversation with them. But one of the other things that it does is called predictive coding. Ooh. And predictive coding, I know it's, ooh. <laughs> this is cool. I love nerdy things. <laughs> so predictive coding is when you walk into a new situation, most of us think we're taking in all the details of that situation, right? So look, I walk into a room and I see, you know, the lights, I see the people, I see this person's face, I see whatever. In fact, we're actually not seeing all the details. What we're seeing is a few details of the present moment. We're seeing maybe a few things and everything else, all the other details are filled in from what you know from the past. So right. every time you go into a new situation, you might, right? And I want to say, actually, that's great for survival because if you've right. once seen a lion and run away and then you walk right. into a room with a lion, you don't want to be like, oh, sharp teeth. Oh, like drooling like, mouth. Oh, big, <laughs> you know, whatever. You want to like be like, let me get the hell out of here, right? So, right. but if you once met a lion and then you go into a room and every time you're filling in a lot of details as if there's a lion in the room when they're friends in the room, right? People who love you in the room, then you're going to be kind of creating this whole fear narrative maybe, mm -hmm. right? Around something that's loving. And how are you going to be right. able to differentiate? How are you going to be able to shift that? So going offline with your default mode network, which happens with psychedelics and other things like really deep regular meditation and yep. fasting, it can happen and, you know, praying it can, ha I mean, there are other things that can offer that this is psychedelics are one way and it happens pretty quickly and strongly with that. It allows you to basically shed that narrative, let's say, so that you're able to see more of the details of the present moment. Oh, isn't that amazing? And then you have choice. Right. Right. Because you're no longer automatically having an expectation that because you've made meaning, right? Because we're meaning makers and we're pattern seekers. Mm -hmm. So then all of a sudden, ooh, we can make a new pattern and make new meaning. What are we going to do? And that's where the little kid comes in. Well, yes. let's throw the finger paint on the wall and stick our nose in it and maybe lick mm -hmm. it and see if it's good. Right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, go, wee! <laughs> see, like, what was that? Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, we're so afraid, though, too, of making mistakes because a lot of that trauma comes from perfectionist, this sort of perfectionist mindset is like, we can't experiment because what if we screw up and then we won't get loved? We won't be taken care of. We won't survive. So I think that right. is part or of we'll, it too. We'll get burnt at the stake. Right. We talked about that earlier. Yeah, there's so many conditioned threads in the tapestry. Like we, It's like you were given a coloring book and 90% of it's already colored in. Right. It's just like here you get only 10, like this percentage is the stuff you can add. That's it. Because the rest of it's already done. Yeah, it's, that's that's interesting. And I can see that that why that then if you do it therapeutically or if you engage in the relationship therapeutically, I'm watching my language. Right. So, you don't do the drug you actually experience so that you can make a shift because you've turned that that's offline. Right. You then mm -hmm. actually have mm -hmm. that window of opportunity, that portal. 
to make a change. A friend of mine had recently done a series with a therapist and it was extraordinary what it did for her. Like extraordinary. Like there was, I'm, I'm talking, real change happened. Like real change, it was amazing. What is some of the gifts and some of the challenges of being a sensitive being? You mentioned a few times about how sensitive you are. Well, you know, I think, um, so my son, I talked about my son being sick and how he took me on this real journey. And I think of him as being kind of a, a very high level shaman, a high level teacher in my life. And I think our children are, our loved ones are, relationships are. But what I really learned through him and through my own journey to understand him was my own level of sensitivity. And actually that all of the patients that I was treating were these, you know, what I call cosmic magnets, right? So they're cosmic the ones- Cosmic <laughs> magnets, I love that. <laughs> Tell me about cosmic magnets. Well, you know, it's sort of like these people who can hear the bee sneeze three miles mm -hmm. away, right? Like you know all That's these me. things, feel all these <laughs> things, right? Like, and you can perceive things that other people are not perceiving. You experience things. And it's not like, oh, you're, you know, it doesn't have to be you're, you're living in this woo reality, right? We don't have to, it can be like, I get sick more often if I'm not careful about how I take care of myself and who I'm around. So it's really just tuning into, again, that it's tuning into the sensitivity and embracing it and honoring it and caring for yourself as a sensitive being rather than trying to suppress it or pretend it's not there. And that I find for many people, going back to the issue of addiction, um, mm -hmm. which is very widespread, is for a lot of people that I have worked with who have addictions, it's because they are incredibly sensitive. And I mean that as a gift. No, I know. I'm, okay. Yep. Well, I'm just saying I, that I was for one anyone of them. listening. Yeah. <laughs> right. That sensitivity is a gift, but that's not what we're taught. That's not how we're treated. We don't know how to care for ourselves spiritually and for our souls in this way. So we have to like figure out what the hell to do to live with this gift. And if you don't know that it's a gift, then you think it's a liability and you have to maybe medicate it away. Or I was a workaholic, right? Yeah. Uh, I had to work it away so that I just didn't know about it, think about it, et cetera. So the sensitivity for me, one of the first things I do with anyone who trains with me is train them in spiritual self-care, like taking saltwater baths or going out and lying on the earth or brushing themselves with plants or, you know, and I have a whole array of different practices that are transformative and they sound simple probably when you hear this, but they really can go, you could go from being in a crowd of people and feeling like, Ugh, and like, you know, agitated and angry and right. Or, or watching the news, you know, and it doesn't have to be a crowd of people to feeling centered, feeling grounded, feeling again, like you're back in your body and safe. Oh, that's amazing. So this has been so great. I would love to pull a card. I'm going to use the Shaman's Dream. This was my latest deck that I did with Alberto Valaldo. And uh, we're going to pick a card and we're just going to see what spirit uh, wants us to talk about. How about you decide, do we want to connect with just the consciousness of spirit or a consciousness of a specific plant that you're connected to? Like, who do you want to talk to? Let's ask. What's the good question? Well, we can connect... So we did talk about 
grandmother ayahuasca. Okay. We could see what she wants us to know right now. Ooh. Okay. Well, since I I did talk to her before, so yes. <laughs> let's ask her. Let's but now see. we're not okay. in a dark alley, so we're okay. No, we're definitely not. We're absolutely <laughs> not. And I'm curious to see. Yeah. Deep quiet and stillness. Mm. So. And again, whether it whether you listening today believe that we have asked a question of Grandmother Ayahuasca and she's answered us or that we've asked the greater consciousness or spirit, we don't know who answered this, but we sure know that this is correct. So the quality of, of the practice of meditation and stillness, how does that work for you? I can tell you what the card actually means is that it is a call for us to slow down and disconnect and be quiet, get off our technology, go back to nature, be quiet, be still, allow yourself to receive. How, how do you feel about that? I love this. I think it's so timely. The idea of we run away from silence sometimes because then what questions, what ideas, what fears, et cetera, are going to arise. But I think what we need right now, the medicine that we need is spaciousness and in silence and quiet and stillness, that allows spaciousness. And so that it guides us, right, going into that sense of curiosity, it guides us into what we need to know in this moment, in this kind of shifting landscape that we're in. And you'll always be correct when you follow that. You know what's really interesting too? Given that we said, oh, well, let's ask grandmother ayahuasca. Uh, it just hit me. I just got a little mini epiphany right now in my mind like to remember that conversation. And I'm thinking like, what was the nature of that? Is that the woman was like overproducing, went back, worked like a crazy person, mm -hmm. wouldn't slow down, wouldn't stay still long enough to receive the message and do the work. That mm -hmm. was the core of that. So I think we could use that story as the metaphor for all of us, right? That the message that she gave me for her is we have a covenant. We, we all have a sacred covenant to be part of this evolution of our species, right? And to reconnect. The only way that this planet's going to survive is if we reconnect to the truth of who we are that we've forgotten. We have, you know, the great forgetting is we see ourselves as separate from one another and separate from nature. So I think that's what that's about too, is that you have to slow down and be still enough to hear that and to forgive yourself for having disconnected, you know, too. That's that, you know, the Kalima, she's coming in, she wants to destroy those old ideas and say, hey, I need you to slow down now. That's the next thing. That's what we do now. We're going to take a little break now. And when we come back, we're going to switch gears and enter another dimension of the universe, the tea time after party. So please stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Maya, let's keep this great conversation going. So we are going to transition and we're going to switch gears right now and travel into another dimension of the universe. And it's called the Tea Time After Party. And joining us now is our executive producer, Connie Deletti. Are you ready, Maya and Connie, for a brand new way of exploring our conversation today? Absolutely. Ready. Okay, so you're an astrologer and you're an herbalist and an ethnobotanist. Um, do plants have charts? Yes. <gasps> okay, tell us. <laughs> this is the very exciting. <laughs> well, anything can have a chart. It's just at its 
time of inception, right? It's birth time. So our country has a chart, like a house can have a chart and a plant could have a chart. It's not like the spirit of the plant, right? But that particular plant could have a chart. Absolutely. Pets have charts, animals have charts. But wait, why isn't it the spirit of the plant? Well, because the plant has been around Plants are much older than we are, right? Well, that's so true. That's we true. don't know when, like, the inception. I can't be like, you know, unless we're saying, like, when we want to make up the beginning of the world sort of thing, I would say it would be a particular plant that you might do the chart for. Interesting. Okay. Wow. That's so cool. Okay. Connie, over to you. If you could be reincarnated as a plant, which plant would you choose? Ooh. Gosh, there's so many nice plants. <laughs> like, this is like the heart. This is like when you ask an herbalist, what herb would you take to like, if you were on a deserted island? They're like, oh no. Um, <laughs> you have to pick one. I know, gosh. You know, I would say um, Brugmansia. Brugmansia is, uh, she's she's a psychedelic plant, but she's also poisonous. And I'm a Scorpio and I kind of am interested in poisonous plants a little bit, um, not to do evil with though. And, um, and she's very beautiful and she blooms at night and her smell is like very heady kind of. Intoxicating? Intox- okay. Literally intoxicating. <laughs> intoxicating. So I'll choose Brugmansia because I'm put on the spot. Oh, cool. <laughs> I love that. I'm also a Scorpio, so that's a great yes. Scorpio answer. Oh. Yes, very nice. <laughs> um, okay, is it your turn again, Connie? It is. Okay. You're banned from the library. Why? <laughs> I feel like you know me so well. <laughs> I'm like, that's where my mind went, right to this question. I'm so. like definitely someone who could get banned because I don't follow the rules ever. Um, but let's say in this case, gosh, it could be so many reasons I'm feeling. Okay, let's say it's because... Um, I'm la- I was laughing too loud and <laughs> causing a ruckus, Ooh. and I wasn't I wasn't able to stop when the librarian asked me to stop. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. You're my kind okay. of girl. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> me too. Okay. If you could live in any sitcom, which one would it be and why? <laughs> so I only recently really started watching TV. And the main sitcom that I kind of started watching because my son liked it is Modern Family. Oh, which, yeah. I'm which not makes sh- sense. That's a good I'm one. not yeah. sure I would want to live in that sitcom, yeah. though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to live in any sitcom, but right. um, but okay. I guess I'll I'll just kind of <laughs> default to that one since that's the one that I've I've watched and I haven't watched a whole lot of them. Oh, that's cute, Connie. Let's do one more. Okay. What is your favorite subject to go down the rabbit hole on? All right. I'm I'm going to give you... <laughs> so, top three or top three? I'll, top yeah, seven. I'll say a couple. I'll <laughs> say a couple. So recently I've gotten really interested in Gene Keys. Oh, that okay. That mm-hmm. interested me mm. and it's been kind of a, a fascinating little dive, I will say. I'm more partial usually to very ancient things, but I like mm-hmm. this astrology eaching kind of combo mm-hmm. and walking uh-huh. around yeah. with the book like yeah. from room to room in my house <laughs> right. and got teased about it and amulets so Ooh. I've been actually I just got this I feel like should I even show it but um yes can you see these yes. are g-beads and they're actually these beautiful um I have I have a few 
they basically are considered, they're ancient, um, although mm-hmm. these are less ancient than the ones that I think cost are like, uh, you know, actually millions of dollars. <laughs> right. But they are protection. They are, and they each have their own particular personality. Yeah, I think amulets are just really interesting because it's a way of partnering the spiritual and energetic world with the material world and then co-creating together with that material thing. So that is a deep dive too. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. Okay, I have one last question. This is a very silly, silly question, but if you could only eat one food all year long, what would it be? <laughs> um, oh my God, I'm going to seem like such a nerd right now because I I really love vegetables. So that's immediately where my mind went was <laughs> actually vegetables. And I'm thinking it would be like... Um, Something good for your microbiome. Probably. It would yeah. be something good for my microbiome. Yeah, like I would probably have like purple cabbage salad or right, some... Right. I know like probably like the yeah. weirdest, weirdest... But you can do a lot of things with cabbage actually, so... I love cabbage. Well, that's good, cabbage. I love Although that. it will give you gas potentially if you that's all you ate all the time. That's all I, yeah, which is why most people do not only eat it's cabbage. cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. I have enjoyed this so much and you're so fascinating and I know we could have talked forever. To see all of Dr. Maya's offerings, including her online programs and astrology readings, head over to drmaya.com. You can also click on the link you see in the description of this episode and be whisked away to our show notes page where you will find links to Dr. Maya's website, her fantastic book, a transcript of this episode, and so much more. Thank you so much, Dr. Maya. It was such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for coming on The Mooniverse. Thank you so much for having me. So what a great conversation that we just had with Dr. Maya. So I'm going to pull a card because I need to kind of summarize what we learned today. Only I'm not going to ask Grandmother Ayahuasca any question. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask like what I always do, just spirit, universe, show me, give me a reflection of what we learned today or a synopsis and see. So the card is Unmarked Trail and it's about revelation. Well, We are revealed when we step into the unmarked trail, the uncharted waters. And that's what she talked about today, that these are allowing ourselves to explore what we don't know, being able to uh, become curious like little kids and explore what doesn't exist yet. And I think that that's what this card represents. And we all have that within us. It is how we are made. If we just allow ourselves and give ourselves permission to step onto that unmarked trail and get curious what amazing miracles we could find. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Colette Baron-Reed. Be well. Time to share the way we love Become the ones we're dreaming of Inside the Wooniverse is a production of Wooniversal Network Studios. A special thanks to our recording engineer, Chris Dupuy, executive producer, Connie Deletti, story editor, Julie Fink, and post-production audio by Lonnie Carmichael. Original theme music written and performed by Michael Seifert at Summa Recording. Original music, Truth Begins, is by Colette Baron-Reed and Eric Ross. If you love what you are hearing and want to keep up to date on episode releases, bonus content, and prize giveaways, please visit us 
at itwpodcast.com. Also, we'd really appreciate a Wootastic review on Apple or Spotify. So please subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another episode on Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine.